You're now listening to episode 70 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hull and Thomas Costello here today with the nation's leading expert in self-storage, Scott Myers. In today's episode, Scott gives us an overview of the self-storage industry, the benefits of investing in self-storage for both active and passive investors, the various ways to add value to self-storage, where he believes we are in the current market cycle, and so much more. Scott, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Really excited about this one. Uh, Could you give our listeners a little information on how you got started in the self-storage space and where you are today. Sure. Well, uh, gosh, I'll give you the the, the shortened version. I uh, got into real estate, um, I think like many folks, uh, which is I started investing in the single-family homes and then uh, realized that that was kind of a tough nut to crack. And so if you wanted the freedom and the cash flow that real estate brings, I had to, to rent up. So I started buying um, apartments, expecting to get, to, to get some economies of scale. And uh, that didn't really work either. And so then I found myself with uh, 400 units of uh, single-family homes and apartments and decided I, um, I wanted to be in real estate for all the benefits of real estate, the things we love about it, appreciation, depreciation, the fact that we can borrow money to, to buy it um, without all the hassles of tenants and toilets and trash. But how could I do that? And it was either parking lots or storage. And you can't build a lot of value in parking lots. And so I started looking into self-storage and then I started going on down that route. And uh, yeah, long story short, we haven't looked back. 7,000 units, um, over 30 plus uh, projects and $40 million in private equity. And um, here we find ourselves uh, finally uh, with, uh, well, lots of cash flow and lots of free time on our hands as well. Uh, that's amazing. Would you be able to give our listeners a little bit of a high level overview of you know, what self-storage industry is about and what self-storage is? So self-storage, gosh, it, it dates back to, to really the 1700s and uh, when there was all these what they call drayage houses uh, in the harbors and uh, marinas um, in the new world uh, for storing everything from spices to things that they were trading. But you know, really for the, the roots of our conversation and what we're talking about here in the United States, uh, really in the, in the 1970s is when it got its start. And then uh, 1978 being uh, the biggest boom in development of self-storage um, until this last one coming out of this last uh, recession. So the idea behind self-storage is it's called mini warehouses, mini storage, whatever you want to call it. Um, self-storage by definition, by the law, is uh, just that. It is self-storage. It means that uh, we don't have access to the keys. We don't create a bailment. We, it creates no liability on our end, like houses or apartments. And that somebody has a uh, sole access to, meaning the key, the only way to get into their unit, and uh, they rent that out. We're not in the warehouse business where we go grab stuff for them and bring it back. We don't have keys or access to their boats or their RVs that are stored out in the parking lot. And uh, they store the things in. They come and go as they please. They, they sign leases by the month. They pay by the month. And if they don't pay, then because it's uh, storage, self-storage, more on the industrial side of real estate, if they don't pay, we get to lock them out. We put them into what's called an overlock situation where we put another lock on their on their door, on their unit. And uh, by law, uh, we have the ability to do that. And if they don't pay us, then we get to sell their stuff off after 90 days uh, per the lien laws that are just about the same in every state. 
So that being, um, you know, the, the largest differences in um, self-storage versus habitational real estate that most people are used to is that we just don't have the liability because we don't have access. Uh, we don't have the liability of the people's goods. If it gets wet, if it gets musty, if it gets eaten by uh, varmin, <laughs> then we're not responsible for that. The only thing we're responsible for is providing the unit. And if they don't pay, then we get to lock them out and sell their stuff and get our money back. And that's a whole lot different than uh, the, the tenant toilet world. So multifamily is pretty popular these days. You see a lot of the multifamily conferences, a lot of the multifamily gurus. Why would a person who's looking to jump into multifamily and own it, or why would a limited partner that's investing in syndicates, um, why would they choose self-storage over multifamily? What are some of those benefits that you see that self-storage has over the multifamily space? Yeah, I think, um, well, first of all, kind of whether a recession or not, um, there's a whole lot of investors, both passive and active, that haven't been through an economic cycle. And I've been through two of them now. And single-family homes and apartments uh, take a nosedive in value. Um, they take a hit um, as dramatically as 40%. And that's not just the past two recessions, but historically, since we've been tracking you know, real estate and values during a recession since really the beginning of time, I mean, you just you, you look to, to see what happens. And there's a lot of money that can be made in apartments during boom times, but when a recession hits, the values plummet. So depending upon when you're selling, you have to hold on to it to, to recoup your money and, and get the returns. It's also harder to get those returns over time or an internal rate of return, which is time sensitive, um, to, to stay at a, at a higher or a sustained level if you're going to hold on through a recession and just coming out of it in, say, a seven to 10-year period. Self-storage, by contrast, um, through a recession, first of all, it does very well during a boom time because when times are good in our economy, we buy more stuff. And people need more storage. And so it continues to, to move up and, uh, and to the right. But then during a recession, um, self-storage um, actually does just the opposite of all other forms of real estate. It becomes in, in higher demand. Uh, we have businesses that are downsizing, individuals that are downsizing, they're moving out of so they're moving back home and exiting all the rental properties and um, moving in with each other. So the apartments, the houses, mass exodus, values drop and self-storage, uh, they put their goods in there while they're um, uh, working through the challenges in, in a business or through individuals in their lives until they're able to move back out again. So uh, there was a study that was done not too long ago, just to, to give it uh, some perspective. That during a recession, there's uh, two industries that profit the most. Actually, they ranked them, but the top two. Number one being liquor. Go figure. People can't afford a vacation, but they can afford to take a short one <laughs> for a night. <laughs> um, and then second is, is self-storage. Those are the top two sectors of our economy during a recession in the entire U.S. economy. So um, for those reasons alone, from an investment standpoint, somebody who holds onto the real estate to somebody who's investing passively, um, we are inflation-proof and recession-proof. And so those are uh, alone, plus the fact that, I mean, just the headaches and the hassles of tenants and toilets and trash. It is um, very highly management intensive in, in apartments. You're looking at a full-time manager for every 400 units, um, or excuse me, for every 100 units or so. And self-storage is uh, one full-time person for every 400 units. We don't want to have to turn these units around and keep an eye on contractors to, uh, for handling uh, the painting and, and drywall repairs and carpet or babysitting the tenants to make sure that they're paying or that they're not, you know, their dogs aren't pooping all over where the, the yard where they should or the neighbor's aren't fighting because we just have a bunch of people storing their stuff there and they drop it off, they leave it and they pay us and, and they go on their merry way. So um, a number of reasons why it allows us to work on our business rather than in our business. And um, the fact that it's recession proof and inflation proof and has um, outpaced all other forms of commercial real estate for the past 30 years. So that's fascinating about the recession proofing. I, I guess was under the false assumption that if I have a 
storage bill and I can no longer afford to make payments, the last thing that I'm going to let go is my primary residence. I'll let the self-storage unit go. But the research is showing and your experience is shown too that that's, that's a false assumption. Well, um, if they're having to let the residents go, or even before that, let's just say they've got an, an apartment and they're moving back home, times are tough, or if they have a home and they're either letting it go or selling it and then moving in with friends or family, there's, there's stuff that they still have that they don't want to get rid of, and it goes in, into storage. Um, so it's not a matter of the folks that kept their home, they don't have to downsize or their apartment. Um, that's a little, little bit different than, and than people that are just uh, holding onto their storage unit now. Of those folks that are holding onto their storage units, <laughs> interestingly enough, you know, the further we got into the last recession, you know, the Great Recession, you know, everybody will um, they'll get rid of everything else um, except for the cable bill. <laughs> so, um, no matter what, um, you know, they'll shed and shed and shed, and then um, the second to the last thing they get rid of is their storage bill um, uh, next to the cable bill. After that, that is fascinating. Okay. They want their stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's much easier to make that decision to either throw it away or do something else with it than it is to get rid of the cable bill when when push comes to shove. But that, <laughs> we we didn't see that until four or five years into the recession before people, you know, if they hadn't found a job or their situation had improved or the business, uh, then then they would address it. But it's cheap. It's cheap warehousing space. It's the cheapest out there, and um, they just don't want to uh, be bothered with it. And everything else is a luxury, but this is really the last necessity that they would get rid of. Wow, fascinating. Okay. Well, you mentioned earlier that you you were originally looking at parking lots. You can't add a whole lot of value to the parking lots. How do you add value to self-storage spaces? Yeah, so you know, our whole business model has been um, when we buy an existing facility, it's got to be a value add. And you, you add value by um, typically the existing facilities that we're purchasing, they're distressed. And it could be distressed owners, a distressed facility, usually both. So the mom and pops that are maybe falling behind in terms of uh, technology, they didn't keep up on even rates in their own market. And so you know, the ways to create value is one is to raise rates if they haven't in a while. And then just you know, employing some of the technology that's in place right now. And in some cases, just putting up a website where these folks haven't had one in the past um, to be able to, to, to rent more units. But beyond that, uh, the use of technology, you know, we have kiosks that we uh, have in our sites that really, uh, I don't want to say they take the place of a manager because nothing can take the place of a person, but we're getting darn close um, where um, this is a low labor intensive type transaction. It's kind of like a red box. And so we have a kiosk in place that rents a unit kind of like a red box uh, movie rental. And it allows them to do everything <clears throat> that a, a person would. They just can't sell them a lock, a physical lock. And, um, and they can't get a paper receipts in some cases. It's just electronic. Um, but at the end of the day, um, to give up you know, $40,000, $50,000 a year in a full-time salary to replace that person with a, a kiosk, which in many instances is like the size of an iPad, um, for 1000 bucks and, and, and about 150 a month um, to be online, um, that, that allows us to be able to uh, you know, move the needle. Uh, then, then to add on all the ancillary profit centers and income streams like uh, offering blocks, boxes, and moving supplies for sale, and then truck rentals. We see a lot of you know U-Hauls and Penske truck rentals. They're they're mostly located at um, storage facilities. Uh, just locks themselves, selling um, the kits for them to move in to protect their goods, selling tenant insurance or renter's insurance, um, whether it be through the kiosk for an individual. Uh, larger facilities where we have uh, boats and RVs, um, we have propane filling stations also run by a kiosk. So, you know, specialized storage uh, and paper uh, shredding services and, and document storage, wine storage for art, other collectibles, um, eBay services, um, shipping services, you know, the list goes on and on. If you have a, a, a manager at that site part-time or the larger sites that are full-time, you know, they can run these businesses within the business because, 
there's not much to run in a self-storage facility when somebody moves in and they, they put their stuff in and then they move out and that's it. So when those folks are there, we keep them busy by running all these other ancillary businesses within the business without us having to, to handle it ourselves. There's over really over 40 different profit centers that you can add to a self-storage facility that we've identified so far in the industry, just depending upon the site and the location um, that we can add to it to, once again, you know, increase the value by increasing the income stream. Whereas apartments, uh, great, we can add vending machines, we can submit into the utilities. We used to, you know, if it didn't have laundry services, we'd do that. And there's a few other amenities that we could add, but nothing like what we found when we started investing in self-storage facilities. And parking lots, well, you raise rates and I don't know, you, you put a kiosk in if there was a person collecting the tab, but it's, it's kind of hard to drive the value um, in that end. Uh, but then also our, on the development side, you know, when you start with a piece of dirt or an empty bowling alley and we convert it to storage or build a facility, then then you're really creating value. So our focus mainly has been on conversions and development recently. Nice. So I know you mentioned before, you know, we talked a little bit about the recessions and what have you. Where do you think we are in the current cycle? And I know it's just like an opinion, not necessarily fact or whatever, but what does the future hold uh, for self-storage? Ah, you want me to get my crystal ball out? You didn't tell me that before we get on this call, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I keep my ear to the ground and there's about three economists that I follow that are pretty darn good at what they do and in, in their predictions. So, um, you know, get, best guesstimate is, is that um, we're heading, and this is based upon the fact that, you know, we're looking at the yield curve. We're looking at the bond market right now. We're looking at um, luxury sales, uh, RV sales down significantly um, quarter over quarter this year. You know, all the indications are, are in place right now that, by, by all of the other measures in any other economy, we would be in recession right now. And some folks say that we are just because we've hit all those uh, areas. Um, but really, we're just a couple of ticks away from um, uh, the, the yield curve really inverting itself. And then we will be in a, in a recession once consumer confidence catches on to that. So I, I think this, this shopping season um, through Christmas is going to be um, a telling sign. And then also with the, how the stock market ends at the end of this year. Um, but I, I believe only because of, of the people I listen to, not me. Um, but but somewhere in the middle of or third you know by third quarter or fourth quarter of uh, 2020 is when we should be heading into a correction of some sort of or a recession. But all it takes is um, I mean Europe's already in a recession, Asia's already suffering that, and so we always lag behind them. It's just a matter of time. It's just a how soon. But if um, if one of the, those other countries in Europe um, hits them on really hard times, or they start to go south in, in a hurry, or if we have some other cataclysmic event, whether it be weather related or war related, then um, that that ought to do it in a man. So that's my that's my take from the information that I have in front of us right now. That's excellent because you know it's, I've been looking into this a little bit too, um, trying to stay on top of uh, where we're going, and I've been hearing a lot of the same stuff about the end of twenty twenty. Um, yeah. being that point where we'll see something. So it's just interesting to see see how this all unfolds. And, and as you said, those self-storage, you know, historically has been able to survive and maybe even prosper during those uh, during yeah. those downtimes, which is great to hear. Yeah, we're, um, I mean, we never wish a recession, obviously, uh, on any one person, let alone our entire country. But, um, you know, since the last recession coming out of it, we've been uh, amassing a war chest of cash and um, really beefing up our, our equity investor partners, our partners passive investing um, folks that come alongside of us. And uh, yeah, we've got a war chest of folks and people and money that uh, we're ready to deploy. And so uh, yeah, our Super Bowl is coming up and, and we're ready to take advantage of the players and, and, uh, and the opportunities that will exist when that happens. No, this is all good. This is all great. Like, you know, on the horizon, what do you see on the horizon for self-storage, you know, I guess in its future, I guess, separately from from the potential uh, potential recession or pullback? 
Yeah, you know, it's a pretty pretty static industry. I mean, there's not there's not a whole lot of things that are really dynamic um, that, that occur in our industry. Um, the good news is is that it's a very predictable business model. Um, you know, fairly simple and predictable in terms of you know where we look, the facilities. We we know where we can take it. We we know what the break even point is. Um, of demand and supply in a market. It's, you know, somewhere between six and a half and seven square foot per person. You know, we'd look at the rental rates in the market and we reverse engineer and model that backwards for any development or conversion or existing facility. And, you know, we, we, we can hit the mark with a fair degree of confidence any time we go into a market. So as we're looking at that, and that hasn't changed. So um, there's been a concern about the millennials and, oh, they're, they're minimalists and they're not going to store anything. But we found that it's just the opposite of that, that um, the millennials, yeah, they, uh, they, they're buying smaller houses or tiny houses or living in apartments with short-term leases. So they'll, they'll quit their job or take a hiatus and go travel or have experiences and adventures. But with those small houses and apartments and the need for adventure comes um, no storage <laughs> for those things that require you to those adventures, which are, um, you know, kayaks and camping equipment, fishing equipment, uh, motorcycles, ATVs, you name it. And so the, the millennials are, are driving forward as, um, as we're seeing the boomers um, have driven for the past 30 years, this industry, when they were buying second homes and buying um, uh, RVs and boats in their retirement and then downsizing and putting things into storage and then downsizing again when they, they go into assisted living facilities, um, the millennials are picking right up. And so we, we I don't see, I don't foresee Again, that crystal ball, the long term, I don't see that changing. Um, plus, our, our insatiable appetite for stuff. And, you know, we are the hyper consumers of the world. We will always continue to have a need for storage. And it's the cheapest, you know, dollar per square foot place to store your extra stuff instead of having to build or buy uh, or move into a larger apartment, condo, or home. So I, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, something cataclysmic can't happen or we'll see shifts. Um, but boy, but, but before I'm done, um, I, I don't see any change in this uh, model or anything drastic that, uh, that makes me nervous about it. We, we, it's, again, fairly predictable. We know what happens in boom times and recession times, and we know consumers' behavior as it pertains to storage as it has ever since the 70s. How has Marie Kondo affected the self-storage industry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, my wife might have a different answer than I do. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to answer that. Um, you right. know what? It doesn't matter. You know what? It's just you take your finger out of a glass of water and it just gets filled in. So what? you throw some <laughs> stuff away, you fold it tighter, you just make room to buy more stuff. That's what we do. Um, and, and I haven't seen a, a need for that. So it's, it's great to go see your closet that's got a little more room in it. And maybe you're more efficient when you travel in your suitcase. But at the end of the day, I can't say that there's any one factor that is um, is making any change in, in demand for storage right now. So if you're an LP investor, say that you, you've been a limited partner and you're investing in a bunch of multifamily syndicates, maybe you're investing in notes or debt syndicates or whatever. Mm-hmm. Why do you feel like LP investors should add self-storage to that portfolio as well? I think for the reasons that we just mentioned, um, you know, first of all, it's recession proof. And, and, and I shouldn't say proof. It's, it's recession resistant and inflation resistant. So it just does very well during uh, both times as a, as a general um, segment of our economy and as an asset class. And so, uh, again, for that alone, you look back historically at, um, you know, the other commercial asset classes that people can invest in. And, and um, some have, have done all right during a recession. Um, some have tanked. But um, we know historically you can look back at, at, at apartments, mobile home parks, uh, medical facilities, even assisted living. You know, they, they don't do well during a downturn. Those valuations get hit and they get hit pretty hard. Whereas self-storage, you can clearly see an increase in the demand for self-storage. Rental rates uh, increase. Uh, and at the same time, the the um, uh, the funding for developing uh, development of self storage, like development of anything, stops 
during a recession, or at least slows down. You know, the, the, the banks don't like speculative deals during a, a recession. They just don't do a whole lot of development financing. So, you know, we in our industry, you know, we hit this perfect storm of increased demand, surge in demand, and uh, lack of new supply coming into the marketplace. So we get this huge uh, absorption of uh, vacant units, and then uh, there and brings in uh, price increases. So um, all you need to do is look back at the figures. If you look at the REITs, you know, in, in 2009, I just wrote an article on this for the Inside Sales Storage uh, Magazine. In 2009, uh, the top uh, REITs in all other commercial asset classes posted a 40% uh, decrease in value and uh, sell storage saw a 5% increase and they paid dividends where none of the rest of them were. So again, history continues to repeat itself when we look at um, sell storage. Uh, It also has, for that reason, it has the lowest loan default rate, um, whether it be good times or bad. But all through this last recession, we were hovering around 0.5% in terms of a uh, default rate, whereas apartments were up around 12% in single family homes. It's all harder to track, but that was uh, somewhere in the mid-teens in terms of, um, uh, of foreclosures and um, uh, the, the rate at which the banks were taking them back. So, um, you know, for us as investors um, it's an, and for our limited partners that we bring in, you know, it's a, it's a pretty easy sell uh, to them. Of course, we don't sell them on anything. But all we need to do is show the stats and, it's, um, you know, it's not very difficult for limited partners to see where to put their money. Excellent. So we are an accounting and tax firm. We like to talk about taxes on all of our podcasts. Can you touch on some of the tax benefits of investing in self-storage? Yeah, I think, you know, no different than any other form of, uh, of real estate. Um, uh, you know, essentially, if you're investing as passively as a limited partner, you're going to get a K-1. And so you're going to be able to have that depreciation that's counted uh, against and, um, you know, all the benefits of owning real estate, you know, fractionally. Uh, the good news about self-storage is that um, what we're seeing with cost segregation is that um, in, in many cases, and in the, in the way that we load them up in our syndications, um, we, we pay it out over two years, but we're looking at um, anywhere from 30 to 40% of that facility can be reduced, a, a reduction in, in our basis by uh, just employing some of the basic cost segregation techniques. Now, we do a little more than the basic. We have some of the best of the best. Um, but uh, from a tax standpoint, um, for the folks that are looking to, you know, again, invest passively, uh, that's one of the ways. Uh, the other is, and, and again, not specific to self-storage, but um, it, it, I'm assuming you've talked with uh, or about opportunity zones with your investors um, or on this Absolutely. podcast. Absolutely. And you know, with, with storage, uh, the good news is there's a lot of those old industrial buildings that even prior to the, the change in, in, in the act, which allowed us, uh, you know, which opened up the opportunity zones, you know, these, um, the, the apartment investors, the condo investors, retail had, had looked at all these buildings that were in those areas anyways and couldn't make it work. And and it still wouldn't work in an opportunity zone. And so, but those are the buildings that we're looking at. So we want the ones that we can buy at a low cost per square foot that the condo guys, retail apartments, um, guys and gals have looked at and they've turned their nose up to. So what's left is uh, self-storage and we can buy that for you know low cost per square foot. Um, it doesn't matter if it's overlooking the railroad tracks. It doesn't matter you know, if it's in an industrial park because that's, if it's long, as long as it's in those same areas and close to apartments and condos, you know, the projects that did go up, um, it's a perfect fit for us to be able to get into those opportunities inexpensively and then, um, you know, take advantage of all the benefits of opportunity zones, um, especially for holding for 10 years. Um, that's got us, I mean, there are very few things in real estate that makes me, you know, when I heard about it, get on my chair and jump up and down. And that was one of them. So uh, that, was, that was big for us. Awesome. Now, circling back to depreciation, let's mm-hmm. say that I buy a million dollar self-storage facility. I run a cost yeah. segregation study and I, I want to use 100% bonus depreciation. Of that million-dollar purchase price, roughly how much is that 100% bonus depreciation going to yield me? 
Yeah, this this is a little bit tricky because um, when we, uh, at least for us, when, when we purchase a self storage facility, um, our, our goal, if it's an existing facility, first of all, our, our goal is to to write two purchase agreements. So one for the real estate itself, and then uh, one for the business or or the goodwill. So if the, the last tax assessment uh, on that million dollar property was assessed at uh, 500,000, uh, I want to write up a purchase agreement to that seller for 500,000 for the property and 500,000 for goodwill and we come closing for a million bucks. So that way it doesn't trigger an increase in uh, property taxes. And so then for the cost segregation, you know, we're going to be looking at that piece and in, in terms of uh, taking, you know, the bonus depreciation, again, we'd like to spread it over two years and, and we can go anywhere between, we're getting between 30 to 40% because all the metal walls and doors, they, they can move. Many of them can move. Um, we can move those walls inside and, and you can look at this depending upon the type of structure. Again, um, if it's you know made out of concrete block or concrete tilt up a little more difficult, but these steel buildings, um, you know, pull barn style, we can depreciate those at a much more aggressive level. Now, so that that's existing facilities. When it comes to development, um, same thing, we're going to be taking those as much as possible in those first two years. And uh, with that in mind, uh, with cost segregation in mind, we can't build it with two purchase agreements. But you know, once it's done, we're, again, going to be taking that and, and spreading it out over a couple of years or uh, depending upon that LLC that purchase in. Usually it's structured to benefit us. No, no offense to the limited partners out there, but usually what benefits us is also going to benefit them the most when they're coming into the front end of a project. And, and we, we're out in five years on most of ours anyways. We don't refinance. Um, we're selling to get our, our LPs maximum returns. And so, yeah, we're going to be aggressive on taking uh, all that depreciation uh, really early in the game. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. The appreciation is always big and glad to hear that uh, other people are excited about the opportunity zones and funds as, as we are. Um, mm. I know that there are, uh, I'm invested in a fund or whatever, they have some self-storage units. And one of the things they're always talking about doing is looking for those warehouses that I think you had mentioned where you can convert those into self-storage yeah. units. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's exciting stuff. So we, we always ask this question of everybody who comes on the show. Uh, what is your favorite piece of technology or an app that you're currently using in your business? Yeah. So um, again, pretty static industry, not much uh, new going on, but what we've done is, um, and, you know, the, the, the kiosks came out um, in 2005 and really took hold in 2006, which, um, you know, allowed people to perform that transaction, move into um, their, their unit without a lot of contact with folks. And it sold a lock or they had to have a lock with them. But now um, there's new technology, uh, really been, uh, been around for about a year and a half. But what we're excited about is the fact that it's now really taking hold and coming down in price. And that is, um, there's a wireless locks on the inside of our door that we can put in place. We build in redundancy for the power and um, also to give us the ability to lock these units from an app on our phone. So the client not only has this app to lock and unlock their door, and they can use a key fob um, as well that we have instead of a a actual physical lock. Uh, But what this uh, allows us uh, to do is even further automate the management of the facility because on the sixth of the month, if people have rent. Anybody who hasn't, the property management software is automatically tied to these locks and it automatically locks down anybody who hasn't paid by the sixth of the month. So we didn't even have to hire somebody to go out and put locks on and, and double check and look at the report to lock down any units that are behind. And, and conversely, if somebody pays immediately, we don't have to have somebody come out and take that lock off. As soon as they pay, um, then it's automatically released from the system. And then the, then the, the app on their phone allows them to then uh, unlock it a second time so that they can get in. So that um, and the fact that we're, we're we're running unmanned facilities, but adding another component to that um, with the kiosk. And this isn't this is just a matter of tying things together. But we're putting video cameras, um, two-way video cameras uh, and screens in our facilities, so that even if somebody comes in and they're using a kiosk, 
um, they have that personal touch now with a motion sensor camera and another screen up above that kiosk. They're connected to the command center, to the mothership. And there is a person that, that says, hey, welcome to XYZ self-storage. Um, the kiosk is located right the units are to, to look at the sizes are over there. And we put the actual units inside of the office, the sizes. It's a large office. They can see what size. So we don't have to put them on a golf cart and run around the facility. And they can uh, rent the entire unit um, uh, right there in the store. But then if they have a question um, before, if there was a kiosk, they didn't have any place to, to get an answer. Now they have a person that um, they just say, hey, um, can you beat the price of the guy down the road? Or I'm having trouble with this transaction. And the other person that is right there watching them, they're connected to and communicating with uh, via camera will complete that transaction. So the one to many, um, you know, not having a manager sitting on site twiddling their thumbs waiting, but um, a kiosk in place to handle that. And then if they have need assistance, you know, there's somebody on the other end of the video that's uh, monitoring and keeping an eye on several facilities, um, not just uh, one. That, that's great. Because actually, I was going to ask as a follow-up question, you know, how, how do you manage the part-time aspect of it? Like, when is there an employee? When, when would there be a part-time person? But that's it. You know, so we're, we're 24 seven and in virtually all our facilities and the, depending upon the size of the facility dictates uh, how much of that is uh, unmanned and then the office hours. And so uh, our, our model is, um, you know, we'd like to, we, in order to increase the value of these facilities uh, and to move the needle, we'd like to add on the profit centers. You know, we'd like to have somebody in the office um, that is upselling them and making sure that they do have renters insurance if they're, if they're not currently covered to make sure they have locks, boxes, and moving supplies to let them know about the other amenities that are available to be able to even have a truck rental program, U-Haul, Penske, Budget, you know, they all require somebody to be there between 30 to 35 hours a week. So we, we are seeking facilities that are either already large enough or that we can, um, we can uh, build more units and expand to get to that place where we have the ability to put somebody in full time um, or the facilities that we're building and, and the buildings that we're converting into storage. Um, there's 60,000 square feet and above, which uh, dictates a full time manager that we can um, have somebody there that is uh, on site to begin to offer those uh, all those amenities because that's what um, allows us, you know, at a dollar per ticket to increase the value and, and move the needle. So those are the ways that we're looking to, to increase the value by having those folks in there. But we also do have some facilities that are completely unmanned and it's just a, not part of the business model just because of the size of it and where it's located. Right. Let me answer your question more succinctly. That was a, that was a long one to answer your question, but um, the, the, the threshold is really 150 units and below. Um, it's going to be tough to get a manager there um, to afford even part-time. You know, you're going to have, uh, have to have a kiosk a retired person that lives real close by and has a cell phone on their hip. But then once you get in that, you know, 175, 200 units and above, you're going to have somebody there during, you know, Saturdays, maybe Sundays, the busy times during the week, but then, you know, you're closed during the non-busy times and then have a, um, a kiosk in place after that, if that, uh, if that helps. It definitely. This all makes sense. Um, one last question before we wrap up for today, you know, is there certain regions of the country of the United States that, that self-storage it makes more sense in than others? Like I would imagine I live here on Long Island in New York and there's a ton of self-storage facilities. There's two of them that were just built within sure. a five mile radius of me, but I always try past them wonder, is this even profitable in, in, in here? Is there certain like at parts of the country that make more sense than others? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, when, when people ask me what business I'm in, I, I, I need to find a better answer because, um, you know, when I'm in a, uh, whatever the sidelines at soccer or neighbor party or something, uh, when I say I'm in self-storage, they'll say, oh, you mean, you know, like on the shows, you know, you, you buy those units and those lockers <laughs> and then sell the stuff off on eBay? No, no, we're on the other side. We own them. And I said, well, gosh, I see these things going up everywhere, you know, They're just like you. I built two of them, you know, across the street from each other. And isn't it saturated? And how do you make any, any money at this? And, um, 
Well, the answer is we don't do it for fun, for kicks. Uh, we do it because there is a demand. Uh, one in 10 households rents one or more self-storage units, seven and a half square foot per person. When you begin to run the math and look at the numbers, you see why um, you see so many self-storage facilities. Now, what are some demand factors that um, some parts of the country or even parts of a, a state or a demographic that increases that? Uh, Florida has no basements and uh, there's high dense, a lot of high density housing with the retirees that are moving down there and uh, even the condos that are being built uh, you know, around the, the coal areas. Um, we see a lot more self-storage facilities and equilibrium isn't seven square foot per person there. It's closer to 10 to 12 square foot per person. So there's a, a higher demand or propensity to store in those areas. College towns, military, again, high-density housing, lots of condos, lots of apartments, um, and, and temporary transitional people that aren't settling down in, in a house, um, per se. Those are the main drivers. I mean, we can kind of pick and choose and you know, look at other, other areas of the country, but those are some of the main drivers uh, behind it. That's good to know. It's good to know. Um, yeah, because any, any region of the country potentially you know, has demand for it, just based on what you said, uh, with the seven square feet per person. I can land um, in any airport and give me about an hour and a half and, uh, and I'll find a market within a three mile radius, which is a market for self storage facility that is underserved. I guarantee it. It's amazing. It's amazing. The, the industry sounds great. So if, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or, or learn more about you uh, mm-hmm. or what you do, what would be you know the best way for them to do that? Sure. Yeah. Best way is uh, selfstorageinvesting.com. So think about self-storage, investing in it, and that's it. Selfstorageinvesting.com. Um, that's how you get in touch with me, as well as um, we have um, two companies. We have an invest- investment company where we invest and develop and convert, and we also have an education company. And so um, you'll find a lot of our education materials, uh, just free downloads and you know intros into um, the uh, the business, uh, videos, um, some white papers, PDFs, things to get you started just so people don't get into trouble. And then, uh, yep, obviously, get in touch with me there as well, uh, including uh, limited partners that may be interested in investing in our in our syndicates. Uh, we usually do about one every month uh, to month or two on our development projects. So, yeah, all things are found there at selfstorageinvesting.com. Awesome. Awesome. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time again to come on the show today. I look forward to uh, getting out there, and it was a great episode. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the debrief segment of today's podcast on self-storage with Scott Myers. Thomas Costello here flying solo today. Just want to give some thoughts on this episode, including uh, some of the benefits of investing in self-storage on the active side. So for those individual investors uh, who are active or the syndicators out there who may be considering self-storage on the passive investment side, and just some overall thoughts on today's episode. So the first thing I wanted to point out is that when investing in self-storage on the active side of the business, you have to look at it as, you know, multifamily right now, this current stage is October 2019, is a very hot asset class. Cap rates pretty much across the country have been compressed over the last several years. Competition is fierce for those assets. And I think self-storage, you know, based on what I'm gathering, is not as saturated. It's not of uh, while it is a very hot asset class. There's not so much people chasing after this asset as something like a multifamily. So, for, as the active side, it might be a little bit easier to find good deals on this side of the business than it is on multifamily. That's just one of the aspects to think about on the active side. Second part about self storage on the active side is that it is a lot easier to manage than a multifamily property. And when you're dealing with tenants. You have to deal with tenant complaints, evicting tenants that aren't paying. The turns for the units cost a little bit more money. Uh, you're ultimately managing tenants in toilets, as they would say. Uh, just a little bit more intensive 
Whereas with self-storage, you're not really managing tenants per se. They're not living in there. Uh, they're just simply storing their stuff. The, the storage units, for the most part, aren't used as much as, say, an apartment building. You know, apartment building, someone's living in there every day. It's a lot of wear and tear. People are sometimes simply going to their self-storage unit once in a while, dropping all, all their stuff. There's not that much that needs to be maintained within the units themselves. It's really just, as Scott would say, uh, a concrete slab with some metal on it. Um, if you go and look inside of a self-storage unit, you'll see that there's, there's no toilets, there's no sinks, there's not that much stuff to really have to repair. Uh, these units are usually built to last for quite a long time. Another thing to add on on the active side is the eviction process. Uh, as we all know, as uh, landlords and real estate investors, depending on where you're investing, evicting somebody who's not paying or otherwise having a negative impact on your property can be a little annoying. There's a process you have to go through. It could take a few weeks, could take a few months, depending on where you're investing. And it's overall just a big pain. In the self-storage industry, you're not dealing with that. Self-storage industry, you're dealing with the lien laws, uh, so it's not the same. And when someone's not paying, you throw a lock on their door and you just say, hey, look, you're not getting your stuff until you pay your back bill or we're going to go to auction. We'll go ahead and auction off your stuff and we're going to release the unit or you know, re-rent the unit to another individual who's going to use their storage. You know, Overall, in a nutshell, that's some of the benefits on the active side. Uh, now, on the passive side, and I suppose this goes for the active side as well is that it is one of the more recession-resistant asset classes. If you look at the numbers, you can find the REIT numbers online. For at least the last 25 years, self-storage has outperformed many of the other real estate asset classes, including multifamily. So you're looking at it, 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 it is a good asset to have in your portfolio during those downtimes. Just to wrap it all up, great asset class. If you want to learn more, you could head on over to Scott's website. He has a ton of information on it. But for right now, we're going to jump right into today's Q&A segment of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. And we have a question today from Darren. And Darren asks, when bonus depreciation is recaptured as 1250 gains, is it taxed as ordinary income? This would seem to be a big flaw in taking accelerated depreciation. Is there a strategy around this? So the first thing I want to do for everybody who's listening who may not know what depreciation recapture is, is explain depreciation recapture. So depreciation recapture is the portion of your capital gain on sale that is attributable to the depreciation you took over the time you owned the property. To give an example, let's just say that you purchase a building for $270,000 and hold that building for 10 years. And in each year you hold that building, you have a depreciation expense of $10,000. This $10,000 depreciation expense lowers your adjusted basis on the property. So you start out with a, an unadjusted basis of $270, and each year that $10,000 brings it down. So in year one, you have $260, $250 in year two, $240 in year three. And by the time you get to year 10, you're all the way at $170. So now in year 10, you're adjusted basis for the property is now $170,000 because of all of the depreciation you took over the time you owned it. Now in year 10, you decide to sell. You sell that property for $400,000. This leaves you with a total gain of $230,000. That's $100,000 from the depreciation recapture. And that $100,000 is taxed as ordinary income up to 25%. So to answer Darren's question, yes, it is tax ordinary income. However, 
is only taxed up to 25%. And there's a few reasons why this is beneficial and why depreciation well, overall is beneficial. And the first one is the time value of money. Depreciation, because it's a non-cash expense, often causes you to be in a lost scenario for tax purposes, which means you're not paying tax on your rental income today. So you could take that rental income and reinvest it for an additional return on your money and then pay that money back later on down the line. And as we know, with the time value money, a dollar today is worth a lot more than a dollar tomorrow. So that's the first reason. Second reason is if you're in a higher tax bracket, let's just say you're at 37% tax bracket, then you are pretty much the depreciation is sheltering your rental income that would be taxed at 37% from tax today, and then you're repaying it back later on when you sell at a rate of only 25%. That's a 12% spread. So basically, depreciation is saving you 12% in tax on each dollar that you would have paid on your rental income if you did not take that depreciation. And by the way, for everybody listening, if you're wondering, you have to take depreciation. If you do not take depreciation, the IRS will assume you have and charge you the depreciation recapture tax anyway. So to answer the last part of Darren's question, is there strategies around this? And the answer is yes. There is the 1031 exchange. When you sell a property, you can use a 1031 exchange to defer the entire capital gain on sale, including depreciation recapture, allowing you to buy a usually much larger property. So that's the first way around it. The second way to get around that is to purchase another property or invest in a syndicate in the same year you sell that property and use a cost segregation study, 100% bonus depreciation, to create passive losses that will offset the capital gain and depreciation recapture on sale of that asset. And again, just to summarize, yes, depreciation recapture is taxed as ordinary income, but only up to 25%. The time value of money means that the dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow. And if you can save that dollar today by using depreciation and reinvest it for a return on your money, you'll be better off. If you're at a higher tax bracket, such 37% tax bracket, there is a 12% spread on the amount of money you would have paid in rental income versus the amount of money you will recapture when it comes time to paying that recapture tax, and this can be mitigated with the proper tax planning. Hope this answers your question, Darren. And if you want to learn more about depreciation, depreciation recapture, and other tax strategies you can use to reduce your tax liability as a landlord, check out our guide, The Ultimate Guide to Tax Planning for Landlords and Buy and Hold Investors. You can check that out in the show notes below. And remember, if you want to have your questions answered here, head over to www.therealestatecpa.com slash podcasts, and we may just answer it live. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients, and with the new tax laws in play, You really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.